Is Donald Trump already ineligible to run for president in 2024, no matter what happens with regard to any indictment? And you've read how the indictments would not change or his convictions would not change the fact that he could run for president. But is he actually already an ineligible according to the Constitution? And then what needs to happen to, well, make that happen? Uh, joining me right now, Edward Foley, contributing columnist at the Washington Post and professor and director election of election law at Ohio State and uh, someone who wrote all about this issue. Welcome to the program, Professor Foley. Good to be with you. So we've been talking about this uh, for a bit, uh, for a while in the past few weeks, and discussing it with those who've written on it from, I guess, a more left, um, you know, political perspective um, or or progressive looking at the Constitution. And then we had two Federalist Society uh, constitutional scholars who you talk about as well in the piece that you wrote who um, are publishing a piece in a journal, making the argument from, obviously, a very conservative point of view. Talk a little bit about their uh, piece, and obviously it has more impact with conservatives because they are Federalist societies, Society members. Sure, happy to do that. Uh, so as you mentioned, these two scholars who have um, you know high reputation uh, in the law school world in general, but are known to be on the conservative side of the perspective on things, are using the methodology of what's called original meaning of the Constitution uh, to interpret it according to how the framers or authors of the Constitution understood it at the time it was adopted. And so they're applying that approach to this part of the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment was adopted during Reconstruction after the Civil War has lots of important provisions in it, like the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. But it also has its Section 3, which is this disqualification provision aimed to disqualify people who joined the Confederacy during the Civil War, betraying their oaths to the country because they had served in the federal government and then betrayed their oath to the Constitution. And so this provision disqualifies them from ever serving in government again at the after the end of the Civil War as part of Reconstruction. But what the, this uh, law review article does with these two authors from this original uh, meaning perspective said, looking at the text, it's not just about the Civil War, it's about any insurrection or rebellion. And so that has meaning and that the authors meant it to apply broadly and in perpetuity, if you will, for as long as we have a constitution, and as long as this provision is in it, it means that if anybody, having taken an oath to uphold a constitution and served in government, betrays that oath in a way that's engaging in an insurrection, then they can no longer serve in government again. And so they they spend hundred you know over I think it's about a couple hundred pages their uh, law review article explaining all the original. Uh, intent behind that language in terms of its drafting during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. They go into great detail about its initial applications and then explain why uh, the January 6th 
attack on the Capitol qualifies as, as an insurrection event. And then Trump's role, because he obviously wasn't one of the people who breached into the Capitol that day, uh, but his uh, fomenting of the riot and the insurrection, and then his, in particular, as commander in chief, and as president on January 6, 2021, he had a constitutional responsibility to, to take care that the laws were faithfully executed, including to stop that kind of riot and to stop people from preventing the lawful counting of the electoral votes. And he did none of that. Um, he tweeted some that seemed to encourage the folks who uh, were against Mike Pence at the time, as I know you know. And so these authors say that his both his actions ahead of the riot and the insurrection and during it uh, constitute engaging in the insurrection for purposes of the original meaning of this provision. Right. And they they certainly uh, responded to what they knew were and had heard before, I'm sure, would be the criticism of um, their uh, argument and they clearly see it as um, very, um, I guess, clear that Donald Trump did engage in uh, incitement, did engage in um, fomenting that insurrection. Yes, I think it's uh, correct to say that from their perspective, they see it as clear. I think at one point they say it's not a close case from their perspective. That's where I would differ with them a little bit, although I I'm of the same view that that properly applied this provision should be understood to disqualify Trump because of his conduct that's on the public record as a result of the January 6th committee uh, hearings and so forth. I I, I think it is more debatable than they uh, characterize it. I, I think, you know, there are plausible arguments on both sides, in particular, whether what Trump did you know, was sufficient to count as engaging for purposes of this provision. Again, I come down on one side of that debate and the same side that they do, but I, I think I've got to be candid to acknowledge that there are already other people in response to this article who are coming down on the other side of that issue. Right. And so it would be something that the courts would decide and ultimately the Supreme Court, which has not ruled on this particular issue and this interpretation of the Constitution, because obviously we haven't been <laughs> at this place before. And so what you uh, write about in the piece, which I found very uh, informative and fascinating, is that it basically needs to get to the Supreme Court. And the process to do that would mean that a state would have to move to take Donald Trump off of the ballot arguing that he's not eligible to be on the ballot. And that sounds easy, but in fact, it means that a state legislature actually has to give the power to an elected official, a statewide elected official, to do that. Thus, it really needs to be a blue state, a state that at least has a legislature that is in control by the Democrats and and uh, and an elected official uh, who is um, a Democrat as well. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, I, I think that's right. Um, unfortunately, it, it's not 
so easy. Maybe it should be in our democracy that that all the rules for running elections should be pretty straightforward. But unfortunately, our rules for presidential elections in particular are very complicated because of the whole electoral college mechanism. Um, and also, you know, we should, even though it's important to go down this road, we should recognize the momentous nature of it. If if you believe in the right of citizens to vote as I do and the equality of voting rights, you want to be careful about denying the right of citizens to vote for the candidate of their choice. But we have provisions in the Constitution that do that in other respects. There may be many Americans today who would like another opportunity to vote for Barack Obama, who think he was a great president and he'd be great again, um, and maybe would prefer to vote for him as the Democratic nominee instead of Joe Biden next time. He's younger than than Joe Biden, but he's not eligible because of another part of the Constitution that is much more straightforward. If you have two terms, that's it. And so there's no factual dispute about that. And so we're not allowed to vote for Barack Obama for president anymore. Um, the, the question about whether or not Americans are allowed to vote for Donald Trump if they want to is more complicated because the only basis to disqualify him would be this provision that was in the aftermath of the Civil War. And that does require applying this old text to a new problem, as you said, that we haven't faced. So the question is who in American government, you know, should make that determination if indeed he's not allowed to be on the ballot. And one point that I really tried to stress in, in the Washington Post piece is that it's imperative, I think, to decide this in advance of no, the November 24 election, because I think it would be terrible uh, for Congress afterwards in the next January 6 meeting, this would be January 6, 2025, if you think hypothetically that Trump is on the ballot, perhaps wins the Electoral College narrowly, but the Democrats control the House of Representatives, as they may well do. Uh, the House is very much in play for 2024. The Senate is very close. I think for Congress to try to disqualify Trump on the grounds of this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment provision would be terrible because that would be taking people's votes away from them after right. they've cast them. And I just think that would make the next January 6th even more perilous than the previous once so I think the time to do this is now, uh, before the Republican convention uh, in July of 24. And the method, as you say, needs some clarification. We're, I think we're going to see uh, litigation on this issue anyway. There are a couple of interest groups that have announced, in effect, publicly, there's news reporting on this, that they're going to try to get Right. Election officials to do this. So this is going to happen one way or the other. They're, they're pressuring um, uh, election officials in Nevada, uh, in Georgia, Michigan, places where they they hope to have, um, you know, somebody it, it obviously thinking in the same way. And, and these are battleground states. Correct. And, and so um, what I tried to contribute was the, the best method to do this in an orderly way, in a fair way would be for a state legislature to establish with a new statute exactly how this gets to court. So there's rights to cross-examination and due process and so forth that would then give a finding, you know, one way or the other, uh, Trump is eligible or he's not eligible under this provision. 
and that would be immediately appealed and would quickly get to the U.S. Supreme Court, which I think is the institution that has to decide this for the entire nation, because if one state like Nevada does it, um, you know, it really should be, he should either be on the ballot in all the states or, or, or not all the states. And if the U.S. Supreme Court was to say he is indeed disqualified, the supremacy clause of the Constitution would require other states to follow that. So um, I, I, let's get one state to create a good procedure, clear procedure, because th there's also the possibility that if you don't have this kind of new law, state officials will interpret existing law is not really suitable for this kind of factual issue. I mean, yes, they can tell pretty easily if a candidate is 35 years old or not. That's an eligibility requirement to be president. They can, the issue of citizenship, you know, is pretty straightforward factually. Um, but this one would require a, a more lengthy trial. Uh, and so- and and, can, and, a, and and a state official, like a secretary of state, couldn't do this on his or her own, uh, the legislature would have to pass a law giving them that power, and then it would obviously be appealed and go through the courts. Yes and no. Yeah, the, the state official, like the secretary of state, absolutely has to have this power from the legislature. No question about that under Article Two of the Constitution. The trickier part is whether any existing law without a new law could be interpreted as already granting that power. Uh -huh. And that's a and that's a state by state, 50 state basis. Uh, and that's also a debatable proposition. I suspect in some states, given the way they write their rules, there's a more plausible argument that an, ex an existing official already has that power. But um, this is an issue of such importance to the country. I don't think we should leave it in doubt. Right. Uh, and it's easy for a legislature to clarify that they want their officials to have this power. So you say a swing state controlled by Democrats, such as Michigan, could and should do this, but any single blue state would suffice because even if New York or California did it, it would be challenged. And as you said, if the Supreme Court ruled that he were ineligible, that would be it, in, ineligible in every every state, in all 50 states. Exactly. That would be quite a uh, quite a task for the Supreme Court. Um, what going by this Supreme Court's uh, track record? What do you think they might do? Yeah, I, I think it could go either way. Um, I, I I think these two scholars who have written this new article are very very respected. Uh, one of them clerked, I believe, for. Chief Justice John Roberts. Now that doesn't uh, mean, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is necessarily going to agree with everything he writes, but you know, independently of that, he's known as a very respected scholar. Both of them are uh, in the conservative war legal world. Um, you know, the the court today is six three in terms of conservatives to liberals, and and you know, Justice Roberts is the one who's often with not often, but sometimes with the liberals on the four side of 5-4 splits. So it's not a guarantee either way, but I think this argument would be taken seriously, very seriously. I agree with you, the court would probably be reluctant. I mean, this is a momentous issue um, and they would you know, tread carefully, but they are the highest court in the land and they exist for difficult cases. And so I think 
if if a lower court, say the Michigan Supreme Court, for example, disqualified Trump, I think they would feel that it's incumbent upon them to resolve the question. And and you're so right about it needing to be done now because not just looking back at 2020 and of course what happened there and what might happen, but also even thinking back to 2000, having the Supreme Court coming in at the very end after voting had happened and then basically saying, sorry, it ends right here. Obviously, that left a very bad um, you know, taste in a lot of people's mouths and real division in the country. Right, right. I mean, sometimes disputes after the voting are unavoidable. I mean, the, the Bush versus Gore situation was obviously very difficult and did leave bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, as you say. But in that context, when you're fighting over, you know, 500 or so votes in the swing state of Florida with hanging chads, I think it, it was going to be a difficult issue, whatever. And the, the goal is to try to f- avoid difficult issues. And then with hindsight, we know we should have replaced the kinds of voting machines with hanging chads to avoid the problem in the first place. Right. And, and sort of what I'm trying to do is, is I'm imagining there could be a problem afterwards that can be settled in advance so that we could avoid the worst kind of problem. So so well, I think your reference to Bush versus Gore is correct in that sense. Really, really interesting, fascinating. And uh, I, I was really looking forward to speaking uh, uh, with you about this. And I'm so glad uh, we had this conversation. Thanks so much for coming on today and discussing it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Professor Edward Foley, he's a contributing columnist at The Washington Post, also professor and director uh, of election law at Ohio State. Follow him on Twitter at Ned Foley, F-O-L-E-Y.